Welcome to the Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This episode, we turn to the great empire of the Kushans and their most powerful ruler, Kanishka. Kanishka led the Kushan Empire at its height when it stretched across Central Asia down the Indus to the Indian Ocean itself, connecting China and India to lands west in the early era of the Silk Road. Kanishka was a strong leader who expanded the empire, stabilized it, and helped connect cultures and cultural ideas across Asia. Maps and images can be found on the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 9, Episode 4, Kanishka the Great, and this is the Almost Forgotten. Kanishka was probably born in the late 1st century AD, either in the southwest Turin Basin on what is today far western China, or in the Kashmir region of today's India and Pakistan. His father was the Kushan king, at least according to Kanishka himself, although there has been some argument over the years that Kanishka was actually the king of Kashmir rather than the son of the Kushan king. But there is general agreement that he was Kushan in origin, wherever he got his start. He reigned during the first half of the 2nd century AD, a time when his empire was at its height. In the west, Rome too was at its peak. Kanishka ruled during the reigns of the emperors Hadrian and Antoninus Pius, truly the Pax Romana, when that empire stretched from a wall on the northern part of the island of Britain, down through Gaul and Hispania, to Mauritania in northern Africa, across Europe and North Africa, with the Rhine and Danube marking its northern border and the Sahara marking its southern, east into Arabia, Judea, and Syria. Germanic tribes lived to the north, and moving east, you hit Slavic tribes before reaching the Iranian-speaking Samartians over on the Pontic Steppe. East of the Roman Empire, the Parthian Empire had faced some serious setbacks at the hands of the Romans in the early part of the century but they had decades of relative peace while Hadrian ruled Rome, Parthia at the time, covering lands from the Euphrates east into what is basically the eastern borders of Iran today. To the south of the Roman Empire, in Africa, the kingdoms of Meroe in Nubia and Aksum in Ethiopia were well established, and through Roman Egypt were linked in with the trade routes that spanned Eurasia. Outside of these trade routes, we're pretty sure, on the other side of the Atlantic, This period saw the beginning of the mound-building Hopewell culture in eastern North America. In Mesoamerica, the pre-classical Maya had undergone a collapse and many of those older cities were abandoned, at least for a time. In contrast, in the Valley of Mexico, Teotihuacan was in a period of significant growth. It was probably home to close to 100,000 people in the middle of the 2nd century, making it just in or just out of the top 10 list of largest cities in the world at the time, and almost surely the largest in the Western Hemisphere. Down the Pacific coast, the Mochi culture was beginning to flourish in north coastal Peru, while the Nazca culture was continuing to grow in southern Peru. West from there brings us back to Asia, and the story in East Asia was Han China. 
But as powerful as the Han Dynasty was, it was ruled by indulgent and incompetent emperors in the first half of the century, and corruption helped to further the slow decline of the empire. To their north, the once mighty Zhongnu tribes had been defeated and were divided. While steppe riders always posed a threat to the Han, the threat had been significantly reduced for a time. The Han Empire itself, meanwhile, stretched west along the Hexi Corridor into the Tarim Basin. Essentially, the corridor was a narrow strip of Silk Road cities and way stations that connected the empire to the desert oases of the Tarim Basin, today's western China, north of the Tibetan Plateau, the Xinjiang province. Moving west from the Tarim Basin into Central Asia and the regions of Transoxiana and Bactria, the Kushan Empire ruled. Their land stretched from perhaps as far north as the Aral Sea, across Sogdiana and Bactria, into Kashmir, and down the Indus Valley. So how did this area get to be ruled by the Kushans? And who were the Kushans? Well, going back more than a few centuries, the Achaemenid Persian Empire ruled Bactria and Sogdiana to the north, as well as Aracosia, down the Helmand River to the south and then eventually to the east into the Indus River Valley. Alexander the Great took almost all of this when he conquered the empire, although his rule over India was, let's say, tenuous at best. When he died and the Seleucid Empire took over most of the lands east of the Mediterranean, they didn't really hold India at all, as the indigenous Indian Mauryan Empire, Season 1, Episode 2, expanded westward. And within a half century, the eastern Seleucid satrapies in Bactria soon broke away from the empire, establishing the Greco-Bactrian kingdom in the 250s BC. Central Asia began to deal with a series of invaders as various steppe tribes were pushed west. The Xiongnu Confederation, north of China, began to grow in strength, and this began a serious domino effect. First, the Yuezhi tribes were pushed west after defeat by the Zhongnu. We'll get back to the Yuezhi, but the dominoes continued to fall, or move west, or whatever. The steppe tribes began entering first Sogdiana and the Fergana Valley, sort of today's Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan, before pushing into Bactria, today's northwest Afghanistan. The Greco-Bactrian kingdom responded by turning south and east, giving rise to what we call the Indo-Greek kingdom, as they pushed into the Indus Valley. Part of this was the interest in the rich and fertile lands of India, but part of it was the difficulties in the north from these steppe tribes. The group of Scythian tribes known as the Saka were pushed into the area thanks to all the migrations up north by the second half of the 100s BC. They came into Sogdiana, then Bactria, and they sacked the city of Iconum, a major Greco-Bactrian center that had been founded as Alexandria on the Oxus. Then they made their way to the Indus Valley and the major city of Takshila, which was a capital of the Indo-Scythian kingdom they established. On the heels of the Saka came the Yuezhi, making their way further south as the Xiongnu grew their power and territory. The Yuezhi were a powerful nomadic group that lived in northwest China in at least the early part of the 2nd century BC. By the 130s BC, after their unsuccessful conflict with the Xiongnu, they made their way into the Fergana Valley, 
and had begun settling in at least the northern part of Bactria. This is when the Han Dynasty sent Zhang Qian, Season 2, Episode 6, who visited them and tried to enlist their help in the fight against the Zhongnu. But the Yueji were content to leave their old lands behind and make do in their new southern lands. Zhang Qian, after his visit, noted several important details. First, that the Yueji had settled as far south as the Amu Darya River, what the Greeks called the Oxus. This meant that some of the larger cities such as Bactria and Iconum probably remained outside of their control, but the Transoxiana region, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, etc., probably was under Yueji control of some sort. He also wrote that they were scattered but spoke the same language suggesting a cultural cohesion, even if there was political disunity. And he noted that, quote, they are skillful at commerce and will haggle over a fraction of a cent, unquote. So perhaps they're open for some cross-continental trading? Anyhow, this group seems to have split into five different kingdoms or chiefdoms or tribes, although again, they were all UAG. They all spoke the same or very similar languages, brought from the East Asian steppe, and they brought their elongated skulls with them. The Ueji bound the skulls of their children in order to change the shape of the head, although the reason isn't clear. They were not the only ones to do this. It was practiced in the Americas, but more famously, it was practiced by the Huns a few centuries after the Ueji as they invaded Eastern Europe. And some of the Eastern Germanic tribes, after they were conquered by the Huns, took up the practice too. Perhaps not coincidentally, these invading Huns are thought by many scholars to be descendants of the Zhongnu after they were eventually defeated and pushed westward themselves by the Chinese. But back to the Yueji. By the beginning of the first century AD, it appears that these steppe nomads were no longer living their entire lives on horseback. They had begun to behave like those in their adopted home, living more sedentary lives, farming, settling down into the cities of the region, issuing coinage, that sort of thing. According to Craig Benjamin in his book Empires of Ancient Eurasia, quote, archaeological evidence suggests a period of intensified architectural and irrigational development during the early Kushan period, as control of the region shifted from the Greeks to the UAG, and as the UAG elites in turn became more skilled at ruling a sedentary state, unquote. By the middle of the 1st century AD, however, the political situation had changed. The five princedoms had become united under one ruler, Kujula Kadphyses, identified by the Chinese sources as the ruler of the Kui Shuang princedom, pulled the Yueji together and gave his tribe's name to his new realm. The Kui Shang became the Kushans in non-Chinese sources. He might not have exactly established a powerful new kingdom early in his reign. The Parthians were the major power to the west of the Kushans in Bactria, and to their south. One of the regional governors or nobles to the southwest of Bactria declared independence from their Parthian overlords. Thus was born the Indo-Parthian kingdom, although they probably didn't earn that name until they began expanding eastward into India. Being the most powerful entity in the immediate region, it seems Kajula Kadphyses was happy to call them his own overlord, and there is an Indo-Parthian inscription from 45 BC naming him as a prince of their realm. 
We don't know if that alliance helped him gain his sway over the rest of the UAG, or if it was after his unification that the Kushan kingdom acknowledged some sort of vassalage to the Indo-Parthians. What we do know is that Kajula Cadphyses first united his kingdom, then at some point began the conquest of neighboring lands, including that of his former overlords, the Indo-Parthians. Gondofaris, the Indo-Parthian leader, died in 46 AD, and his kingdom began to fracture. The Kushans moved into the Kabul Valley and took Kabul itself, although this may well have been done even before Gondofari's death. Kabul, to the south and east of Bactria, on the other side of the Hindu Kush mountains, gave the Kushans not only a much larger territory, it also gave them a clear route into India and the rich agricultural lands of what is today northern Pakistan and India. By the time he died, the Kushan kingdom was a real power in the region. Kajula lived into his 80s, which helped solidify the kingdom he created. Purushapura, today's Peshawar, in the region known as Gandhara in ancient times, was taken by Kajula, who made it at least a part-time capital of his empire. He styled himself, among many other titles of course, as Maharaja Raharajasa Devaputra Kajula Kara Kadphises a pretty clear indication of some sort of rule over Indian territory before his death, sometime between 80 and 90 AD. For the next 50 years or so, Kajula's son and then grandson became kings. This gave them about a century with only three rulers, something that surely added to the stability of the Kushan kingdom. They expanded the kingdom somewhat, stretching it farther north, as well as deeper into northern India. There are limited sources about these rulers, like to the point that some kings have at times been thought to possibly be just legendary. But recent scholarship confirms the existence of one king, Vima Taktu. An inscription in Kushan script, partially deciphered in May of 2023, makes mention of the king. In addition to the excitement of finally being able to understand at least some of the Kushan alphabet, as well as the confirmation of the existence of Kajula's successors, something else was interesting to me. The article mentions that the researchers were able to decipher a bunch of words in an Iranian language. It seems to confirm that the Kushans spoke an Iranian language, which is believed to be closely related to Bactrian. What isn't known is how long they spoke that language. It was believed for a long time that the UAG could have spoken Tokarian, an Indo-European language that was not part of the Indo-Iranian language subgroup. An early migration of Indo-European speakers made their way from the Pontic-Caspian steppe all the way east to the Atlai Mountains in today's western Mongolia, sometime around 3000 BC. If Proto-Indo-European scholars such as David Anthony, author of The Horse, the Wheel, and Language, are correct, This was only the second major migration of the Proto-Indo-European speakers, after the eventual speakers of languages such as Hittite and Anatolia. The Tokarian speakers made their way east, and they lived in the Tarim Basin, where the UAG also lived, so it would make sense that they spoke Tokarian, but the Kushan script suggests they spoke a Middle Iranian language, related to Bactrian. Perhaps they adopted this language after they moved west out of the Tarim Basin and into Central Asia, because it would fit with their later history of adopting other languages and alphabets. Part of the reason the Kushan script had been such a mystery is that they stopped using it once they got big and powerful, 
and started writing on rocks in addition to more biodegradable material. The Kushans had moved into a region that spoke Bactrian, an Iranian language, as well as Ionian Greek, thanks to, you know, the whole Hellenistic thing. Bactrian was a part of the language family that dominated the region, and whether it just happened naturally, or it was a purposeful thing in order to facilitate trade, or ingratiate themselves with the locals, the Kushans began using Bactrian, although they used Greek as their official language. Because for administrative purposes, yes, they adopted the language of their Greco-Bactrian predecessors. In the year 127 AD, the king Vima Cadphyses died, and next in line was Kanishka. Kanishka claimed to be the great-grandson of Kajula Cadphyses and the son of the prior king. It is generally accepted that this is true, although we aren't sure and sources are limited for Kanishka's reign. Despite this, we know that his accomplishments were impressive, he expanded his kingdom, and it is likely that the Kushan Empire reached its greatest territorial extent under Kanishka. We know he pushed the empire east along the Ganges River. He captured Kaushambi, which was an ancient capital of one of the many northern kingdoms during the Mahajanapada period. He also captured Pataliputra, a major city pretty far east along the Ganges that had been the capital of the Mauryan Empire. He did claim that Pataliputra submitted to him on an inscription, and the Chinese sources mention his attack. So while we don't know how much influence and control Kanishka had that far east into India, we know he held at least some power there. Likely it was a tributary state, at least for some part of his reign. Further south, there is some evidence that Kanishka defeated a king of the Satavahana dynasty, which ruled much of the Deccan Plateau in the center of modern India. The Kushans also moved southwest and fully took the region known as Sindh, the lower Indus River Valley. Likely, they were already in Sindh for a while before Kanishka came to the throne. He seemed to have solidified their control to the point that they were able to focus on expansion in other areas. Kushan power also made its way back into the Tarim Basin, at least nominally. Kanishka had some control over Kashgar, through vassal kings during the early part of his reign, although the Chinese reasserted themselves there at some point. But the Kushans and the Han Chinese seem to have had relatively peaceful relations, despite their mutual interest in the Tarim Basin. The Han were worried about the steppe nomads on their doorstep, and courted the Kushans multiple times to try and gain an ally against the threat. And of course the Kushans under Kanishka controlled a vast territory that was a vital part of the Silk Road. The Chinese had no interest in stopping the trade with the West. Kanishka likely fought against the Parthians as well, although relations were generally positive, much like with the Chinese keeping the trade routes open and safe were a higher priority most of the time. Chinese sources do record a massive battle between the Kushans and the Parthians. They blame a cruel and obstinate ruler of Parthia, who gathered a huge army and attacked Kanishka. Kanishka was victorious and killed nearly a million Parthians. I mean, probably not the right number, but it's not out of question to imagine some border disputes between the two and a large Kushan victory. Unlike with the Chinese, where there were some pretty well-defined natural borders, in most cases, to keep everyone friendly, the Kushan were sitting on land that had belonged to various Western rulers over the centuries, from the Achaemenids to the Seleucids to the Parthians themselves. 
border conflicts were probably inevitable and not uncommon, even if full-on wars may have been rare. Kanishka, according to the Chinese, was victorious in whatever fights may have occurred. Beyond conquest and expansion, during his reign, Kanishka made significant cultural impacts. He decreed that the Bactrian language was the official language of his kingdom. No doubt spoken by the kings before his time, he began to issue coins, not in Greek like his predecessors, but in Bactrian, although with Greek letters. Greco-Bactrian kingdom coins had been magnificent. The land was rich and the coins were made to prove it. Large and finely detailed, they remain some of the most amazing example of Hellenistic coins. So it isn't surprising that the Uaji issued very similar coins once they took over the lands. It's maybe more surprising that it took them a century to switch it up from having the Greek language written on new coins. Beyond this adaptation seemingly tailor-made to demonstrate how much the Kushans were willing to absorb local culture, in order to be more easily accepted as rulers, Kanishka himself also seems to have played a significant part in the spread of Buddhism. Whether he himself was a true believer in Buddhism is something we'll probably never know. There were legends about his realization of the horrors of war and his subsequent conversion, similar to that of the Mauryan ruler Ashoka. Importantly, Kanishka, like his fellow Kushan kings, embraced all the major religions of the empire. Certainly, the Greek gods were depicted in various kingly portraits, and Zoroastrian practices are probably the most common religious connections shown with the rulers. But Buddhism's influence grew and expanded under Kanishka, and he clearly had an affinity for it. Buddha was depicted on Kushan coins during his reign, something that was new under Kanishka. And while the coins that have been found suggest they were for ceremonial purposes only, the fact that they were some of the first ever images of the Buddha was consequential. Buddhism spread into China through the Kushan Empire, and Chinese sources lauded the Buddha's stupas and monasteries Kanishka had built. According to Benjamin, quote, the same sources include an account of an important Buddhist conference that Kanishka had convened in Kashmir. After considerable discussion of the various competing schools of Buddhism, Kanishka decreed that the key Buddhist texts were to be translated from earlier languages that used Gandharan and Prakrit scripts into the classical language of Sanskrit, unquote. He worked to codify some Buddhist scripture, and he built a 600-foot-tall jewel-covered Buddhist stupa in Peshawar, which was solidified as his main capital. He was also a sponsor of Buddhist art. His patronage helped the Gandhara school of sculpture develop and proliferate throughout the region. He wasn't responsible for the introduction of Buddhism into China. That had already happened by the time he was around. But his part in codifying certain aspects of Buddhism which spread to China and really started to take root soon after his death, was a major aspect of its widespread importance over most of Eastern Asia. One of the most consequential things that the Kushans did was rule an empire that was relatively stable. This led to a flourishing of trade across the entire Eurasian continent. That's because, while the Silk Road is often thought of as two empires, Rome and Han China, being connected across a vast distance through trade, it was, for much of the time of the classical Silk Road, a connection of four empires. As China sent explorers, diplomats, and eventually armies west, 
at least trying to cobble together some sort of agreement with the UAG against the steppe nomads, China's influence and territory itself moved west. This helped to facilitate the connections that increased the trade across the continent. Four relatively stable empires, Roman, Parthian, Kushan, and Han, ruled contiguous lands for a time, allowing a relatively safe route from the Atlantic across Asia to the Pacific. And the Kushans also connected these routes into the lands of India, which were a significant part of the trade network as well. According to Benjamin, in the 1930s, a cache of goods from the Kushan period was unearthed near Bagram in Afghanistan. It was a reflection of the global marketplace, and no doubt of the wealth the Kushans were able to attain through trade. Quote, Among the discoveries were Roman bronze sculptures, Han lacquer boxes, superbly painted Roman and Egyptian glass vessels depicting scenes such as the lighthouse at Alexandria and an African leopard hunt, and more than a thousand pieces of Indian carved ivory and bone sculptures of placidly smiling women and mythical river creatures, unquote. Trade was a significant part of the wealth and success of the Kushan Empire. Their position along the Silk Road was incredibly beneficial to their empire, and their stability and reach was beneficial to the success of the trade routes. Kanishka died in 150 AD, and his son Havishka took over the empire. He reigned for 30 years, and the next king, Vasudeva I, ruled for a little over 40 years. This stability since the time of Kajula was remarkable, and it was part of the reason why the Kushan were so successful over such a long period. For nearly two centuries, the empire was ruled by just six men, none of whom reigned for less than 15 years. But after Vasudeva, the period of the great Kushans, as they were known, was over. The Sasanian Persians overthrew the Parthians and expanded eastward into Bactria, pushing the Kushans themselves east. They turned to the Chinese asking for help against the new threat, and this time it was the Chinese turn to pass on a military alliance. Over the next century, the Kushans declined significantly and were pushed completely out of Central Asia. Meanwhile, the rise of the Gupta Empire in the early 300s AD brought pressure from further east, squeezing the later Kushans into a smaller space and possibly into a state of vassalage to the Guptas. By the end of the 4th century, the Kushans had completely disappeared, swallowed up by various external threats as well as former vassal states. While the Kushans ruled, they served as a unifying power across a broad region, allowing not just goods and money to travel across Eurasia, but ideas as well. And it was a two-way street, as the Kushans incorporated local ideas, but also brought some of their own. According to the Cambridge Ancient History, quote, The Kushanas are a remarkable dynasty because they not only introduced new cultural features to South Asia, such as an improved cavalry with the use of reins and saddle, or the trouser, tunic, and coat style of dressing, but also vigorously embraced the elements of indigenous cultures. This is reflected in their patronage, as well as adoption of popular religions like Buddhism and Shivaism and their promotion of Sanskrit literature, unquote. But it was mostly being at the heart of the Silk Road that kept the Kushans so strong. That and their ability to have a relatively stable empire for well over a century and a half with long-lived emperors who seemed to have steady hands that were able to rule various cultures 
while also absorbing some of their best characteristics. According to Benjamin, quote, it was this political, economic, and social stability that helped make possible the smooth flow of material and non-material commodities along the trade routes, particularly as the bulk of land-based trade out of Han China passed directly through their territory, before linking to ports on the coast of South Asia and maritime routes across the Indian Ocean, unquote. Kanishka was perhaps the greatest ruler of the Kushan Empire. He improved its stability, and he seemed to be a capable general who expanded the empire and defended it when called upon to do so. His influence may have been even more important on the cultural side of things, where his actions helped the process of formalizing several Buddhist schools of thought, leading to its successful spread and taking root further east, in China and in Southeast Asia. Kanishka is remembered today in Buddhist tradition as a humble, devout, and honorable man, and as a great king. Next episode, we will follow the Kushans east into India and move forward almost five centuries to a man who united a fragmented region for a time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>